We'll open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians. And as I was uh, preparing this week, I felt like we've actually made a lot of progress. We're in chapter 3 now. <laughs> Anytime you get to a new chapter, you feel like you've really made some, some headway in the, in the teaching of God's Word. Sometimes it feels like you're getting bogged down in ideas or themes and thoughts. And so turning a corner here today is encouraging to me. But we continue in discussing what I've called fools and wise men. And this is the fourth part of this. It actually began in chapter 1 at verse 10. And it will continue through the end of chapter 3. So we look at this fourth part today. And we turn a bit of a corner in our understanding of what fools and wise men actually look like, where Paul is now making more specific application based upon everything that he has said thus far. So we've looked at God's wisdom as revealed through the message of the cross, and it's this wisdom that Paul has made front and center in his preaching. It's what he has convinced and convicted the Corinthian church of their need to restore. But he's also told us that this wisdom can only be understood as the Holy Spirit enables us to understood. It cannot be understood through human philosophy, and it cannot be concluded about by man's own thinking. So the Corinthian Christians who were converted under the ministry of Paul and Apollos, and apparently some even through Peter, have lost their way because they've allowed this human philosophy and this human wisdom to infiltrate their thinking and their believing and their acting as the body of believers in Corinth. They are committed to trying to add human philosophy and wisdom to the work of the cross, to what it means to know God, and how, how they could effectively live out their lives according to God's plans and purposes. And they do so apart from the teaching that Apollos and Paul had given to them. So this reality in the life of the Corinthian church has created bitter divisiveness within them. And so in our passage today... Paul is going to give the result or the influence that human philosophy has had upon the believing community that he is addressing here in Corinth. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-9. through 9. Paul continues through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says these words, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as, as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, As to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth, so that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So you'll notice in our outline, we're beginning with Roman numeral 3 as we continue through this outline in the fourth part of Fools and Wise Men. And so we see here that the result of human wisdom is division. 
Now remember what's already been said, that the Greek culture had as many as 50 identifiable philosophies that would attempt to explain who man is, why man is here, what is man's destiny, how might man know God, and what are these gods, plural, that man might come to know through philosophy and through wisdom. So these 50 different identifiable philosophies did not agree with one another. And so you begin to have two or three or 10 or 20 different philosophies or different sources of wisdom that come into a body of believers. And you can bet there's going to be great division as to who is right and who is wrong and who are we going to follow and why do we disagree and what is right and what is wrong. So the result of this addition of human philosophy and human wisdom in the Corinthian church, the result is division. This is one of the chief reasons why Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church. Going all the way back to Corinthians 1 chapter 10, excuse me, Corinthians 1 verse 10, Paul would say this, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So this division is severe, it is critical, and it has to be, direct, has to be addressed, and it has to be instructed upon in order to remedy the problem that exists within the church of Corinth. So verse 1, And I, brethren, could not... Excuse me. Number 1, The cause of this division is the flesh. Paul writes in verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. So verse 1 is going to discuss what is a very common problem within the Christian church today, just as it was in the Corinthian church when Paul wrote this letter, and that is carnal Christianity. Now, some will argue that there is no such thing as carnal Christianity. They will say that you are either committed to Christ or you are not, and there is no middle ground. But those that would adhere to this position don't account for or recognize the process of lordship or the process of sanctification that takes place in the life of a believer. This process of sanctification, this reality of lordship, is a lifelong process that you and I will continue to live out all the days of our lives. Your understanding of lordship has grown and progressed today over what it was in day one of your salvation. Your understanding or application of sanctification is very different today than it was in the very beginning of your journey with Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now, because of the way that human philosophy and wisdom has been accepted into the Corinthian church, Paul says that I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, babes in Christ. Now, what Paul is not saying is that they are not saved. He's not saying that you are not Christians or that you have made a false profession. After all, he addresses them as brethren. Now, if Paul was not addressing 
the redeemed community, he would not have chosen that word. Now, the word that Paul uses as a part of this phraseology is this word spiritual. I cannot speak to you as to spiritual men. So this word spiritual can be understood in two ways. One way, the first way would be he's speaking to men in their spiritual position. It relates to our position as members in the family of God who have been saved by Christ. So anytime you see the word spiritual, it can be applied to what is our spiritual standing in the family of God because of our salvation. But it also speaks of practice, how one lives out their life day to day, week to week, and month to month. He speaks to them in position by calling them brethren, but He cannot speak to them in their practice because of the way they're living their lives. That's what He says. I recognize you as being a part of the brethren, but I can't speak to you in terms of your practice as the brethren because of the way you're living your lives. Your lives are in um, are in disarray. Your church is a mess. It is divided because of the impact that human philosophy and human wisdom is having on your lives. He says that you are baby Christians. Baby Christians are those that have not grown in their faith. They have not proceeded very far in their journey of sanctification or in their application of lordship after their conversion. Another way of describing a carnal Christian would be using the terminology of being worldly. You're not a committed believer in Christ. You are a worldly Christian who has your allegiance divided. Worldliness is much more than bad habits. It is an orientation. It is a way of thinking and a way of believing. It is buying into the world's philosophies. It is buying into human wisdom. It is looking at the world for our standards. It is looking at the world for what is the right attitude. It is looking at the world for what is the meaning of my life. We sometimes look to human leaders, to influential and popular people, to neighbors and associates and others, and we look at them or we listen to them and we say, that sounds right. That looks right. That seems right. That interests me. That's something that I want to give myself to. If you don't think that's true, why do you think that advertisers spend millions and billions of dollars seeking endorsements from people who are influential or people who are popular. Now, I watch some TV, and one of the, one of the commercials that I see with great regularity <laughs> is this invitation to call the Medicare helpline because you're not getting all of the benefits that you deserve. And so they get Joe Namath. They get Joe Namath to encourage you to call the Medicare hotline, which is nothing more than an insurance agency trying to sign you up to buy supplemental insurance. Or they get Jimmy J.J. Walker, who was a fixture in the 70s. But people look at that and go, Joe Namath, I ought to call. Joe's a good guy. I believe in Joe. Let's call. This is the influence that looking to the world and believing in popular people, that's the kind of impact that it has 
in our lives. I would bet you that if I could list off for you the ten most famous actors in our world today, you go, oh yeah, I like their films. Yeah, those are entertaining. I like that guy. And then if I were to describe what they thought and what they believed, you go, oh, wait a minute, I didn't know that. And that's what the discernment of the Spirit is designed to give to us, is the ability to say human philosophy, human wisdom, and influential popular people in the world aren't going to be the ones who dictate to me what I think, what I believe, and how I live my life. But you've got to understand that there are bazillions of people who are being led astray through the influence of worldliness in our culture today. Worldliness is accepting, the, is accepting the world's definitions, the world's measuring sticks, and the world's goals apart from the truth of Scripture. I challenge you, encourage you, dare you this week to ask somebody that you know that is not a Christian this very simple question. Let me ask you a question, Bob or Joe or Mike. What do you think it takes for someone to be able to get into heaven? What kind of an answer do you think you're going to hear? Well, you know, I've never cheated on my spouse and I've never beaten up my kids and I haven't robbed a bank. And, you know, I try to help people when I get a chance to do that. Isn't that good enough? That's a worldly standard. That's a worldly idea. That's a worldly definition of what makes us satisfactory before God. Or, well, I go to church all the time and I give to the poor and I do all these things. But you see, when we look at the world, apart from the truth of Scripture, we are going to be led astray. And when the truth of God's Word isn't the filter that we sift all these different ideologies through, we stand the chance of coming out against what God has taught, as opposed to being in alignment with what God's Word has told us about who He is and how do we measure up to Him and how do we live out our lives. So when worldliness goes unopposed in our lives, it is going to feed our flesh, our natural man, in a very devastating way. Our flesh, those natural desires, those natural interests and instincts that we have, the flesh is the bridge to all that the world thinks and says and does and promotes. Because our flesh loves the things of the world, the things of the world are as appealing to us as a warm chocolate chip cookie. I love a warm chocolate chip cookie. Man, I can think about it, and it just kind of melts in your mouth, and it just it coats the entirety of your mouth with this warm, sweet, mmm, I need a glass of milk. Isn't that what you do? But when there's nothing on the bridge of our flesh that says, eh, you can't get in, then the world feeds our flesh in a very devastating way. So instead of being sweet and delicious, what we need to recognize is that worldliness is evil and destructive. We would read this from the Apostle John in the book of 1 John. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, 
flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the, excuse me, but is from the world. So thinking about the analogy of a baby, you got this cute little nine month old sitting on his blanket filled with the surrounding toys. He's oblivious to what's going on around him. Isn't that right? He looks across the room and he sees that outlet, that socket over there. And he goes, that looks interesting. I think I want to investigate that. That socket satisfies something in his fleshly desire that he knows nothing about. And he goes, I'm going to explore. That's my nature to explore. And he goes over there and he starts poking around at it. And you, as the gatekeeper to his flesh, says, no, don't do that. That's dangerous. That will hurt you. This is what the Word of God does. This is what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God, the Word of God says, no, that's going to hurt you. You need to protect yourself from that thing. But when we act like babies, there is no gatekeeper. We're happy just to crawl around the room and poke our fingers in anything we can possibly find or to put it into our mouths. Bugs, dirt. It doesn't matter what it is. A baby will put anything into its mouth. When you and I were born physically in this world, we inherited our sinful fleshly nature from Adam, our spiritual father, and with it, the propensity to sin. When we are saved, we are made to be new spiritual creatures in Christ. We are given His holiness and His righteousness, and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God broke the back of sin and crippled its ability and paid its penalty, but the tendency and the propensity towards sin still remains. Paul would write in Romans... I'm sorry, I skipped one ahead. Paul would write in the book of Romans, For that which I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. Does that sound familiar? Can you identify with that? Have you ever looked back on the course of your day and thought, why would I have ever done such a thing? Why do I have ever said such a thing? Why did I not protect myself from that influence? Sure we do. You know why? Because we have the tendency and the propensity to sin. We have this flesh nature that is alive within us and it sees those things and it calls out for those things. And if you and I are not intentional, it's going to open the gate to the bridge to the world and will bring evil and sin and destruction into our lives. Paul would go on and say, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, which means all those things are bad, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. Our mind has to be transformed from the old influence of the world, the natural fleshly desires and instincts. Our flesh is alive and we must fight every day to defeat it and its desire to connect with the things of the world, with our former way of life, which was dominated by sin and selfishness. If we do not fight against this, we will become saturated with the world, we will not be saturated by the Word of God, and we will live our lives like 
baby Christians who know no better, who don't know any different, who just explore and satisfy themselves with whatever it is they find. Paul is speaking to baby Christians who prefer milk. Verse 2a, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Now Paul is referencing back to his original journey to the city of Corinth, as recorded in Acts chapter 18, 17 and 18, where he went as an evangelist and where he taught the the crucifixion of Christ and where many were saved. And so Paul says that I taught you the basic elementary principles of God's truth, the gospel, and what the gospel meant. I couldn't teach you the deeper riches of God's Word because you're not able to receive it. So Paul taught to them the elementary principles of Christianity because that was all these newly converted people could understand and apply to their lives. I remember when I was a new Christian, I was saved at the age of 21, and I remember going to church and I would sit through sermons and I would go, the the what, the who, Uh, what's he talking about, I understand this, this makes no sense to me. And I would look at my Bible and I'd think, holy cow, i got to read all that? And I'm supposed to know that and understand that? How am I ever going to do that? Well, you don't start at the end. You start at the beginning. And so Paul was only able to teach them what they were able to process. It's the exact same way when you're dealing with a baby. What do you give a newborn baby? You give it milk. Why? Because it can't chew solid food. It can't swallow solid food. It can't digest solid food. All it can do is nurse on milk. But as time goes by, there is the need for and the expectation of adding solid food to our spiritual diets. We should never be satisfied with milk. We should desire and we should feed ourselves on the solid food, the meat of the Word. Now, this is something interesting that I don't know that I actually understood in this way. There's no difference between the truth of spiritual milk and the truth of spiritual solid food. The difference is in the depth and in the detail. And all right, milk is still food. It's just not solid food. It's still food. It's just not the kind of food that's going to help your physical body grow to its maximum potential. All doctrine may have both milk and solid food elements, but they're still equally true. So a new Christian might explain the atonement like this. Well, Christ died for my sins. Well, yeah, that's the atonement in a very surface level. That's the milk of atonement. But somebody who's been a believer for a long time and has read and studied the Word might be able to go into things like regeneration and justification and substitution and propitiation and how all of these things work together in the instant that you're saved. The, the who, the what, the, the, the what, are you, what word was that? You see, the solid food gets into detail and depth. It puts meat on the bone or it puts protein in the milk. I remember when our kids were four, five, six months old Milk didn't cut it anymore. They were hungry a lot more frequently than the regular 
nursing schedule was. So what did you do? You started giving them cereal. And then you started giving them pureed vegetable. And you gave them pureed fruits. And then you gave them Cheerios. And then you gave them bread. And then it progressed and progressed. Isn't that right? And when a baby sees you eat, what does it do? It wants it. It's something different. They want that. And they go, me, put it in your mouth. Ooh, I like that. That tastes pretty good. I want some more of that. That is the natural expectation that every parent will have is that in a few months, I'm going to have to give this baby something more than milk or their growth is going to be stunted. The exact same thing is true in our spiritual lives. We need more than the elementary principles of the gospel We need more than evangelistic messages to help us grow in our understanding of what the Lordship of Christ means, of what it means to be a sanctified believer in Jesus Christ, to be able to handle with some kind of maturity what's going on out there in our world and be able to say, that's not right. That disagrees with what Scripture says. But a baby Christian just says, well, that kind of sounds true. That sounds like something I heard in a sermon one day. So maybe it's accurate. Maybe I ought to listen to them more often. Well, when we look at this illustration of a baby Christian or of a baby in and of itself. We look at babies and don't we just say, man, that's just the cutest little thing. We have little Elena that runs around here. And we say, man, she's such a cute little girl. She's such a bundle of joy and energy and excitement. But if you put Elena's mind in a 20-year-old adult, you'd say, man, that's a tragedy. That adult doesn't have the ability to think beyond what this little... 12-month-old child can. That's terribly sad, isn't it? A baby who acts like a baby is a joy, but an adult who acts like a baby is a tragedy. Sadly, the Corinthian church was filled with adults who were acting like babies. Time hasn't changed them. They are still satisfied with milk. This is what Paul goes on to say in second part of verse 2 in the beginning of verse 3. He says, Indeed, even now, you are not yet able to eat solid food, for you are still fleshly. So Paul was with them for 18 months based upon uh, what we, the timeline we have in the book of Acts. Apollos was there for about three and a half years based upon the timeline of when it's understood that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. So they have been believers for five years and they're still nursing on milk, satisfied with it, uninterested in the solid food of the word of God. They are years in the faith, but only weeks in their nourishment on the meat of the word. The result is of their own choosing. It is a preference to satisfy the cravings of the flesh and deny the spirit by being complacent and lazy and undisciplined in their study of the truth of God. Now, people could sit here and say, well, you know, I don't want to live my life as an immature Christian. Well, my friend, if you don't open up your Bible and spend some time reading it and studying it and helping others, having others help you understand it, you're going to stay a baby Christian. If all you get is what you are fed from a Sunday message, you are not going to grow at the capacity, at the rate that you're capable of. And so you're 
not, so you're choosing not to read the Word of God is your volitional choice to stay immature in the faith. So the root cause of the division that the Corinthian church is experiencing is a result of them being in the flesh. Number two in our outline, the symptoms of division that Paul gives to us here is jealousy and strife. Last part of verse 3. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Now, jealousy is the internal attitude and strife is the external emotion. Jealousy can be an internal attitude and envy can be the external emotion or even the internal emotion. Covetousness, anger, all of those different emotions become the overflow of an internal attitude. So the mention of these two examples is not to be understood as a complete list of fleshly symptoms or the only cause of the division that they were experiencing in their church. It's the prominent ones that Paul is identifying here. The reality is that there are many sinful attitudes and many sinful emotions that are the result of spiritual immaturity in our lives. In fact, Jesus would identify several of these in the Gospel of Mark. It didn't make it into your outline. I'm sorry. Here's what it says in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Well, where do these things come from that are within us? They're already there. They're there as a part of our flesh. They're there as a part of our old spiritual position, dead, and capable of knowing God, understanding God, relating to God. So these things are there. And if our flesh is the bridge to the world, and we find everything that our flesh desires in the world, then rather than these things dying through our transformation, they are fed and strengthened by our not transforming our minds through this study of God's Word. Our inactivity allows these sinful attitudes to stay within us in a dormant state, in a growing state, and then to flesh themselves out in the way that we live our lives. Have you ever gotten angry and lashed out? Have you ever been upset and become judgmental or bitter towards someone? Have you ever muttered under your breath these Thoughts and feelings that you have? Why do you do that? Because you have this part of you that is not fully arrived at sanctification. It is not fully under the Lordship of Christ. And the bad news is, it never will be so. But we have to battle this each and every day so that we look more like Christ than we look like the world. That's the part of how we can measure our growth. Well, you know, the last time my kid did that, I didn't chew him out and ground him for a month. I understood that that's all they were capable of doing. And so I had a good talking to, and I helped them understand that what they did was wrong. 
So there's different ways that we show maturation in our lives. Spiritually, if we're not dealing with these things that are deep within us, we will continue to be baby Christians and we will allow divisiveness to blow up within the relationships and the life of the church. So this worldliness, these things that are in us that we would call the flesh, these things will corrupt our morals. They will weaken our personal relationships. They will produce doubt about God and His Word. They'll destroy our prayer life and they will provide fertile ground for heresy and false doctrine, which is exactly what was taking place in the life of the church in Corinth. So the flesh is going to attack right doctrine and right living and right belief and right practice. Don't let anybody deceive you. What you and I believe is going to dictate what you and I do. The flesh will exalt itself over everything and the result will be, we will say, if I can't have it that way, if I can't have it when I want it, there's going to be trouble because I'm going to fight to get what I want. Do you know people like that? What happens when people like that become leaders within the church? What happens when you've got a bunch of people like that within the life of the church? You've got all kinds of stuff going on. You've got factions. You've got arguing. You've got strife. You've got animosity. You've got all this stuff going on. So Paul asks the question here in verse 3. Are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? This question is posed in such a way that there can only be one answer. Yes, you're right, Paul. That's exactly how we are living our lives. This is expressed again in verse 4. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Are you not acting and thinking and living like fleshly men? That you're pledging your allegiance to a human as opposed to the cross of Christ and all the wisdom that comes from that. Fleshly, immature people cooperate only with those leaders and fellow believers with whom they happen to agree or who personally appeal to them or who will flatter them. Think about that. Immature people cooperate only with those who believe like them, agree with them, or will flatter them. When we fail to cooperate with church leaders or with one another, it is an indication of spiritual immaturity and the exaltation of self. Well, you know, I know that's what the leadership says, but I don't think that's what I really have to do. I think I'm going to do what I want to do. What are they going to do? Kick me out? What are they going to do? Scold me? Okay, I'm still going to do what I want to do. You see, that's the mark of immaturity. That's the exaltation of self over and above what God has ordained in the church, which is a hierarchy of leadership that we are to submissively follow. He's the head, Christ is the head, and He designates some to be leaders to lead the flock, and the flock is to follow the leaders. That's the way God has ordained it. So people who are immature and exalt themselves will say, this is what I think, this is what I want, so this is what I'm going to do. Factions will develop when there is jealousy and strife or any other form of carnality that will exalt self over others. When a congregation develops loyalties around individuals, it is a sure symptom of spiritual maturity and trouble is about to come. Well, you know, I like Deacon Joe. Deacon Joe's my man. This is what Deacon Joe says about this ministry initiative. I don't think I can agree with it because Deacon Deacon Joe ain't going to. 
Well, yeah, you know, Deacon Bob said this is a great thing for the church. This has all kinds of benefits for us. I'm going to go with Deacon Bob. Well, I think I'm going to have to fight you over that. And I'm going to disagree with you in a business meeting when we have it. I mean, do you think that takes place in the life of the church today? Oh, you better believe it does. You better believe it. And you've got deacons like Joe and got deacons like Bob out there saying, what do you think about that? Do you agree with me? Well, you need to back me up. You need to be in my camp. And so we begin to associate with those who believe like us and think like us and act like us and will be cooperative with us. And it's devastating in the life of the church. Neither Paul nor Apollos stoked the division that existed within the church at Corinth over who they were to follow. Sometimes leaders are guilty of that. But here it is the result of people who have developed an allegiance to one man over another because of their carnal, fleshly behavior. You know, sometimes you've, well, I'm sure you've heard this said, you know, the best president was the last president. Right? The best pastor was the last pastor. You're not the guy. And we believe the next pastor is going to be better than the one we got. And then the next pastor comes and they say, well, you know, the last one was better than that. It's all a part of the cycle of how our flesh exalts self over others and runs rampant. And all these fleshly desires and attitudes and emotions come out. And the result is bad. Paul calls them out for acting like mere men, indicating that they're operating out of the flesh and not the spirit. So the cause for division is the flesh. The symptoms are jealousy and strife. And here's the cure for division. The cure for division is glorifying God. When our attention is focused on the Lord, there will be no time and no room for division. When our attention is on Him, it cannot be on ourselves and it will not be on human leaders. We are to glorify God, not His servants. This is what Paul says in verse 5. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Well, stop right there. What might individuals say to that? Oh, Apollos was a great man. He cared about me. He loved me. He helped me. He taught me. He enabled me to understand. He was by my side. Paulus was a great man. What about Paul? Paul was the apostle. Paul was the one that birthed the church. Paul was in a great evangelistic missionary leader. Paul was a discipler. Paul was utilized by God to save my family. Paul says, who am I? What am I? I am nothing but a servant through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. So the glorification of men is what Paul is trying to put to rest here. You don't glorify a human leader. You glorify God, not the servants. The world honors and tries to immortalize great men because they are the highest thing man knows. That's why you go to Washington, D.C., and you see the Lincoln Memorial. You see the Washington Monument. You see all these things to great leaders of the past because we want to immortalize them because they're the greatest that our human minds can ever understand or know. But that's not true for the Christian. The world cannot see beyond itself, but the Christian sees and recognizes the Creator, the Sustainer, the Savior, the Lord of the universe, the source of all things. The one who made my salvation possible. 
He is the one that we want to honor. He is the one that we want to glorify. And we simply want to recognize the servants that God has called up and chosen to use to be a benefit to my spiritual life. God alone is worthy of our honor. We are simply servants of Him, all of us in whatever capacity that we serve. We are instruments used by Him for His glory alone. Paul hits on this a little bit when he writes his letter to the church in Thessalonica. He says this, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligent labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. You see, the servant, the pastor being the most high profile because he's up preaching on week after week after week, he's the most likely one to have the infatuation or the adulation of the constituency. But that's not really the way it's supposed to be. We are all fellow servants of God, gifted by Him as He has chosen with a very specific purpose of serving Him. And as we serve Him... Only God gets the credit. Let me say this. If you serve, if I serve in a fleshly capacity, that my concern isn't over God being pleased with my service. I'm concerned about what are you going to say? Are you going to pat me on the back and give me an attaboy? Are you going to say, boy, that was the greatest sermon I've ever heard in my life? Are you going to say, boy, that changed my life? What are you going to say? Well, see, if I'm serving the Lord, it doesn't matter what anybody says or doesn't say. If you're in the nursery, it doesn't matter that somebody comes back and says, thank you so much that we didn't have to listen to the crying babies in church today. I was able to worship. I was able to learn. Thank you so much for your dedicated service and doing those things because it's really made a difference in the life of the church. You see, if nobody ever says those things to you, it shouldn't bother you one bit because our service is to be for the Lord, for His glory. I'm just an instrument. You know, if you're going to immortalize a great painter or sculptor, you don't make a plaque of their paintbrush or of their chisel, or of their paint palette, right? You don't do that. Those are the instruments. We're the instruments. We're not what get immortalized. We're not what gets credited or glorified. God is, because God is the source. Paul makes a point here in verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Paul makes the role of the servant incredibly clear. We are nothing but instruments that God has chosen to use. He is the one who is responsible for the growth. Therefore, He and He alone is the one who gets the glory. So using agricultural terms that this people would be, that these people would be familiar with, the farmer is the one that plants. And back in that day, the ability to water was pretty limited. They didn't have um, modern watering techniques like we do with trenches and hoses and all those different kinds of things. They didn't have the ability to fertilize like we do today. So they would plant the seed and they would just let the growth happen. They knew they had nothing to do with it. We know that to be true today. Many a farmer will say, I plant the seed and I put the water down, but God's the one that makes the peach, not me. 
It's all up to Him. He's the one that causes the growth. Paul would say, I planted, Apollos watered. We can't make that grow in you. Only God can do that. Therefore, God is the one that gets the glory. Verse 7, So that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Think about this for just a second. What kind of mental image, what kind of thought do we have about the evangelist who tirelessly bangs on the door or stands on the street corner or goes out to the college campuses and shares the gospel with people that they don't know? You say, man, what a hero. What do we say about the missionaries who travel into these remote parts of the world, these third world countries where food is hard to come by and medical care is a hope and a prayer, not really something to depend upon. What do we say about them? Boy, they're they're Christians to be admired. What does Paul say? They're nothing. They're nothing. That doesn't mean that we don't esteem them, that we don't love them, that we don't give thanks to God for them. But they're just simply instruments, and God is the one who causes the growth. Any evangelist, any minister, any missionary that comes back and says, well, you know, I was out there on the mission field, and I led 25 people to the Lord. Well, I'm not so sure you're giving God the glory for that. Sounds like you're taking a lot of credit. I can't make anyone believe. All I can do is be an instrument that God chooses to cause growth from. Paul says, I'm nothing. Apollos is nothing. God is the one who gets the credit. Now, since we're all servants of God, anything good that happens within the kingdom of God as a result of our service, He gets the glory for. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your commitment. Thank you for your willingness to sacrifice something for the kingdom. But praise God, the one who gets the glory. Not you, not me. He and He alone. We will get rewarded, however. Verse 8. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. I'll talk about that in a second. But each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Planting and watering are different aspects of service. But Paul is emphasizing the oneness that exists within the laborers. Not all are pastors, not all are evangelists, not all are teachers, not all are mercy givers, not all are encouragers, not all are prayer warriors, but we're all one in the body of Christ. We are all singularly instruments in His kingdom And He gets the glory for whatever is done because we are one. We are one in Him and all that is accomplished is a part of our being joined together in Christ and God is glorified through that. So recognition of our oneness in the Lord is the sure and only remedy for divisiveness. So I'll say it like this. Let's just say, for example, that we had a a revival and we had an evangelist come in and we had a week-long series of messages and we saw 
a dozen people who were saved. And we would say, oh boy, we're so glad we brought brother so-and-so in here because those people never would have been saved. He's such a great guy. Well, no, it's, it's our church. It's our body. It's our service. It's our labor together. The revivalist was simply the instrument that God chose to use along with us to bring about something positive in His kingdom. Shouldn't that make us feel good about all that we do in service to Him, even if it isn't public and high profile? Your contribution, your service to the kingdom is just as valuable as the one who plants and the one who waters. It's just different. So, it leaves no place for the flesh. It removes the potential for jealousy and strife and division when we see ourselves unified as believers in Christ, serving the kingdom together, where God and God alone gets the glory. But God does not fail to recognize the faithful work of His servants. Each one will receive his own reward according to his labor. Reward is based upon labor, not the results. This reward will be ours when we are ushered into heaven, when God stands before us and asks us to give an account for our life. And we answer the question. God evaluates our labor. Don't think He doesn't see it. Don't think it's not going to come up. Because it is. It's kind of like when you're cramming for a test and there's this one part that's really, really hard and you just hope it's not going to be on the exam, but lo and behold, it's there. I knew it was going to be on there. I should have studied for that. Well, God's going to ask us and we're going to have to give an account. So, remembering back to one of these themes that we had in the beginning, this is God's church. It's not the Corinthians' church. It's not Apollos' church. It's not Paul's church. It is God's church. The believers were there, are God's field. The believers are God's building. The believers are the product of God's work alone. And the glory for any good work done there or anywhere is also God's alone. So whenever we experience division within our relationships, when we experience division within our church, we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, what part of my flesh is potentially the root of this division? And if you're talking to an immature believer, they're going to point the finger at you. No, it's you. It's not me. It couldn't possibly be me. You said you did. You wouldn't. You shouldn't, etc., etc. A mature believer will say, I didn't realize that I offended you. How can I make this right? Will you please forgive me for the way that I have offended you? Where's the division? It's covered. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about all that you know about the salvation that you enjoy. The fact that it wasn't your parents, it wasn't your favorite pastor, it wasn't that dear sweet friend, it wasn't a grandmother who prayed for years that enabled you to be saved. It was simply the work of God alone through an instrument that He chose to use for your benefit. You can love and esteem that instrument, but you are to glorify God for the gift of your salvation. 
recognizing that we have absolutely no contribution to our salvation. Even when we were enemies against God, He was making provision for us to know Him. Not because of anything that you had done, not because of any potential in you, but simply because He willed it to be so. Would you pray with me, please?